0: wherever you're listening.
1: Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from
0: Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice
1: of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling.
2: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
0: So,
3: Sharon, since he was found guilty in 2012, Robin Cho has tried to overturn his conviction any way he can. He's appealed. That was denied. He's petitioned the state for habeas corpus which is basically a last-ditch appeal, which was also denied. As we're recording this, Cho has been incarcerated for a decade. He's an inmate at Pelican Bay State Prison in Crescent City, California. He's now 62 years old. Correct. So what do we know about how Robin Cho is doing now, in 2021? How is he holding up in prison?
4: Well, as we've mentioned, Cho has declined to be interviewed about the specifics of his case, but he has answered some of our written questions. In the last letter we received from him, he told us, quote, Due to my chronic medical conditions, I was not feeling well in the past two months. I had both leg surgery in 2019, but specialists told me I need follow-up surgery. I was told one leg is worse than before the surgery in 2019, unquote. I asked Cho's wife, Puna, if she could go into more detail about his medical conditions. He got diabetes while staying there.
5: He had a blood clot, but I don't know what happened. And when he was moving to a different prison, he had a lot of documents to prove that he's innocent. And he hurt his shoulder while carrying the documents. His shoulder is bad. His leg is bad. He has diabetes.
4: So that's what we know about how he's doing now. So now
3: that we've heard everything, and I mean, we've covered the entire investigation up to the present day, and it's a strange one. There have been a lot of things I've noticed along the way that are weird, don't make sense, just don't add up.
4: Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to get into everything that makes us wonder. Did the cops solve this case? Or is Robin Cho in prison for a crime he didn't commit? The jury has spoken. But there's still a lot of truth that needs uncovering. I'm Ben Adair. And I'm Sharon Choi. You're listening to Strangeland, Season 1, The Koreatown Murders.
3: This is Episode 7, Holes in the Case, Part 1. Okay, Sharon, so first let's talk about the crimes themselves. The murders and the murder scene, because things got weird from the very beginning. So one thing that sticks out to me is that there was no sign of forced entry into the song's apartment. That could mean a few different things. Maybe the killer could pick locks or had a key. Or maybe the people in the apartment let the killer in. Maybe they knew him. Are there any theories about how the killer got into the Song's apartment?
4: So according to court documents, another tenant of the Renaissance apartment complex, a woman named Amber Sexton, stated that the children from the Song household would often play in the hallway. She said it was not uncommon to see their door open.
3: Oh, okay. So the door could have just been unlocked. Nothing fancy, no lock picking needed or anything like that. Door could have just been unlocked.
4: Yeah, it could have been.
3: Okay. That makes sense. So my next question is about the method. You know, throughout this whole investigation, we've heard these killings described as execution style or professional by the media, by law enforcement. But execution style doesn't seem consistent with the theory of the crime posed by the prosecution, the burglary gone wrong. I mean, were these killings execution style or not?
4: Yeah. So that would really depend on who you ask. According to court documents, one of the prosecutor's crime scene reconstruction experts initially observed, quote, in my opinion, it's fair to say someone wanted one of these two women dead. Whether it was one as opposed to the other, I actually could not say,
3: unquote. If they were targeted, that would lean toward professionals or at least someone who knew what they were doing.
4: Yeah, also at trial, Detective Rob Bubb testified for the prosecution. He was the one who had been called to the crime scene the day of the murders. He testified that, as we know, there were no eyewitnesses to these crimes. So that sounds like the killer was able to enter the apartment, fire six bullets, murder three people over the course of possibly an hour, and leave without being seen. Detective Bob also testified that he didn't find any expended shell casings at the crime scene. So either the killer took the time to collect the shell casings after firing, or they used a revolver, which doesn't expel shell casings.
3: It's always struck me as very strange that no one heard six shots in the middle of an apartment building. I mean, given that guns make a lot of noise and silencers like we see in the movies don't really exist. Exactly. But if the killer was using something like a suppressor on the weapon to dampen the sound a bit, between that and collecting the shell casings or using a revolver, that to me demonstrates a level of preparedness of knowing what you're doing. Like maybe they'd done this before.
4: Yes. If we're to believe the prosecution's version of events, we would have to accept that Cho entered the Song's apartment to commit burglary and brought a firearm. Possibly a firearm with a suppressor, like you said.
3: Right, and we would also have to accept that Cho was caught in the act, that he was surprised, so he shot and killed the nanny and the boy, but then waited 30 minutes to an hour for the wife to come home and then killed her.
4: Yes, and then left the crime scene without stealing anything.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, these circumstances seem to imply a more planned or professional killing.
4: Maybe. But there's also evidence that these murders were not professional in their nature.
3: Really? Like what?
4: Well, for starters, the type of ammunition that was used. LAPD criminalist Rafael Garcia examined bullet fragments found at the crime scene. According to his testimony at trial, quote, police officers use hollow points because it best stops an attack. Hypothetically, professional killers would use hollow points to ensure the victim's death. However, the bullets found in this case were wad cutters, which were used in competitive shooting because they caused perfect circles in the targets." Unquote.
3: Huh. You know, that does make me think about the bullets that Cho dumped in the trash at Ross Dress for Less. He said those are from a firing range. He said that he'd been to firing ranges before.
4: Yeah. And here's another point to consider. If this were a professional hit, you'd assume a high level of marksmanship. But LAPD crime scene reconstruction expert Paul Delhauer observed that six shots were fired, and one was a miss. One of the shots missed? Yeah. Even though these shots were fired at a fairly close range, one completely missed the victims. It struck the wall of the shower.
3: You know, Sharon, another inconsistency occurred to me. Why was the wife the only victim that was tied up with duct tape? Three people were shot, but only the wife was tied up.
4: The LAPD's crime scene expert, Delhauer, weighed in on that too. He said that the binding and gagging was further proof of the sequence of the murders. He said the binding lessened the possibility that the wife would react loudly when she was brought into the bathroom and saw the other two bodies.
3: Hmm, okay.
4: And there's one more detail that's inconsistent with this idea, that this was a professional hit. As Paul Delhauer pointed out, Professional killers would want to ensure that their victims were dead. But the bullet that hit the two year old didn't kill him instantly. The medical examiner who conducted the autopsy of the two year old determined that the bullet entered his left shoulder and traveled downward. And quote, death was not instantaneous, but resulted from loss of blood. Jesus. Yeah.
3: Sharon, uh, what sticks out to you here? What, What questions do you have?
4: Well, okay. so since we're discussing the child victim, the question that keeps weighing on me, and it's a really difficult question to answer, I know. But the question is, is Robin Cho really capable of murdering a young child? I mean, that's a difficult, almost impossible question
3: to answer, right?
4: Yeah, I know. But, you know, I've spent hours interviewing Cho's family and friends, asking them about Cho's nature, who he was, and what kind of person he is. And, you know, as you'd expect, they have a lot of kind things to say about him. This is Charlie Cho, one of Robin Cho's older brothers. When I interviewed him, he was visibly distraught about all of this even after all these years.
1: He was always so calm, quiet, never talked much, always hated causing harm to other people. He had so much affection for his family, especially towards his parents. He did so much that I couldn't do. So just thinking about it, He always took care of our parents. In terms of Hyo, he was a much better son than I was. He did everything I couldn't do.
4: Both Charlie and Bona used the word Hyo when they started talking about Robin. They got really emotional talking about how much Hyo Robin has. So Hyo means filial piety, which basically means duty towards your parents. It's a moral obligation and the ultimate virtue that pretty much absolves everything in Korean culture. To them, Robin is the epitome of Hyo. And it's inconceivable that he'd be capable of murdering people, let alone a child. I also spoke with one of Cho's closest friends, a man named John Shinwoo Kim. He says he met Cho while they were studying at Santa Monica College. They've been friends for 40 years.
3: He's not the type of person who can ever harm someone else. He never picks an argument with anyone or causes any sort of trouble. To think that someone like him murdered all those people, and plus without any motive, I don't understand it at all.
1: The Robin I know would never be able to do something like that.
3: Robin was the epitome of a gentleman. He was always a gentle, virtuous man, like a Sunbi.
4: The moment John described Robin as a Sunbi, I got a general idea of Robin's character, and it really gave me pause.
3: Why? What does Sunbi mean?
4: So Sunbi refers to scholars from the old dynasties in Korea. Nowadays, we use the word to describe a certain type of character, someone who's virtuous, reserved, and conscientious. It's not always a compliment because it can also mean that you're old fashioned and uptight, but you would have to meet pretty high standards to be called this word. I mean, look, whether or not someone is capable of murder, child murder, how can we know? You know, actually Sharon, I
3: know someone who might be able to shed some light on this. Who is it? Well, he's a man who was in federal prison for almost eight years, and he spent a lot of time in the company of killers. He studied them and almost became one himself. We're going to talk with him next, right after the break.
2: Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me.
3: Okay, Sharon, you have some really good questions in the last segment about the nature of killers, about whether or not Robin Cho could really be capable of killing a child.
4: Yeah, it seems like an almost impossible question to answer. I think I know a good place to start.
3: I want to introduce you to a man named Joe Loya. Joe and I made a podcast together called The Bank Robber Diaries. Joe, it turns out, was one of the most prolific bank robbers in Southern California history. He robbed over 30 banks before getting popped by the FBI and sent to federal prison. He spent eight years there, in maximum security, alongside some of the toughest guys you can imagine.
6: My best friend in prison, who is a member of the Mexican mafia, actually killed himself after they realized he had killed somebody in the prison. He didn't want to do 99 years, so just didn't want to do it. And he'd killed people, and we talked about it because we were best friends. And not only the stories of people he had killed, but stories of people he had seen murdered, other men he knew had been killed. So I've heard myriad stories from people who are involved in, in killing.
3: Besides studying killers and breaking bread with killers in prison, Joe almost became one. When he was 16 years old, he was being badly abused by his father. So he stabbed him in the neck
4: to try to get away from him. Wow, so he really knows what it takes to become a killer.
3: Yeah, so something you should know about Joe is that, number one, he changed his life. He's not a bad dude anymore. That's what our podcast, The Bank Robber Diaries, is all about. And number two, he's one of the most insightful people I've met. He has this crazy ability to read people and situations and immediately know exactly what's going on.
4: Okay, so what does Joe say? How does someone turn into a killer?
3: Well, it all starts with someone feeling threatened. It could be a physical threat, like someone might physically harm you or kill you, or a psychological threat, like someone will cause others to think something about you that's so bad. Your life as you know it
6: could end. So it's not actually maybe physically in peril, but the idea of who you are, your sense of self, will be extinguished. And so you have to first turn somebody into this thing that's an, that's other, just a piece of meat. And when you turn somebody into the other, they become something else, They're the enemy. They're trying to kill you, and you could kill them.
3: What are the differences that you've seen between People who have killed and people who haven't killed. Are there fundamental differences? What are the differences?
6: Actually, what's interesting is there's two kinds of killers. There's the one who kills once and never kills again. Because it was such a wild act of passion, they're not going to kill again. They're just, it was a perfect storm. I met this guy, his name was Andre. He looked like a monster, he looked like he was killing people every day. Um, big scars on his head and he'd been brutalized as a kid. But he was a sweetheart of a man now in prison. But he got in a drunk brawl when he was at nineteen and he bashed some guy over the head with a bottle and the guy died. He was not a killer. He just accidentally killed the guy. So then you meet the other people like my friends who have been killing people in drive by since they were kids, stabbing people in cells, and then they come to prison and they're just they're killers. I met a guy in prison, killed a man, got put in solitary confinement five years, came out within a couple of months, killed another man, five more years. Came out and killed another man. He was going back for another five years in solitary confinement. That's a guy who knew how to kill, knew that he would come out and keep doing it, enjoyed doing it. He liked the power he, that he derived from that.
3: So is there a difference in these types of killings? Like, do killers draw a distinction between, like, killing a wife and killing a two-year-old? I mean, to me, the two-year-old is, like, most egregious here. Is there a difference in a killer's mind?
6: There's no codes to killing. People talk about codes, but it's a criminal act. Once you get on the other side of breaking the law, it's just all law-breaking. So when you're dealing with murder, you're dealing with the ultimate not giving a fuck. It's not like there's, oh, we can't kill kids. They'll, they're killing, they're going to kill. All they are is abstractions. They're pawns on a chessboard. They just need to be moved out of the way.
3: So what strikes you about these crimes?
6: To so, I me, mean, it's they're two separate killings. There's the the nanny and, and the boy are one murder scene, murder time. The fact that they weren't tied up, that they're nothing, the same thing didn't happen to them, that the woman tells you there's a different category of intent. And then the person waits, the killer waits, for so the woman ties her up. In fact, it's such a close, intimate thing to tie someone up and sit there and watch, hold them, touch them. Tying someone is intimate. And then you have to mansplain to her because that's totally what happened there. I'm going to explain to you. Here's my chance to explain to them why they had to die and why they offended me and how pissed off I am, and then I'm just going to get mad at them. Either way, the first one is is a murder seen unto itself, and then the second one is an entirely different thing. It feels very personal.
3: so knowing knowing what we know about Cho do you think he could have done these crimes?
6: A man who does $2.2 million worth of fraud is a man who's heavily invested in the reputation of himself. So he is vulnerable as anybody else, or more so, to feeling desperate when an impression of himself is at risk. His sense of identity is at risk. I would say, The fact that he did all that fraud shows me that there is a way in which this man's sense of his identity is really, really keen, and he could feel imperiled that way. But I don't know what that would have to do with that woman. I have no fucking clue.
3: From what I'm hearing you say, though, the financial motive doesn't make sense given the personal nature of the killing of the wife.
6: Do I think he could have killed her for the reasons the prosecution said? Mm, I don't see that connection at all. That's That doesn't make sense to me at all because the money was left behind. He treated the other people's collateral damage, but this is a very personal, intimate thing to talk to tie a woman up. So I don't see that. I don't see that.
3: So Sharon, what would you think of what Joe had to say there?
4: Well... It's really interesting that he divides things up into two separate murders. That the killing of Cherise seemed more personal. She was tied up, the others weren't. The idea of the killer lecturing at Cherise, explaining how it's her fault she's about to die, that's messed up. It reminds me, you know, when Cho was being interrogated, the detectives asked him if he was having an affair with Cherise, to which he said no.
3: Oh, that's interesting. Almost like maybe the police were thinking about that too, that the killing of Therese might have been the real intent. And as Joe says, the other two were collateral damage. Like nothing was going to stop the killer from their real mission.
4: Yeah, I'm also surprised to hear Joe say that many killers really wouldn't make a distinction between killing an adult and killing a child.
3: Yeah, that was interesting to me too.
4: But the last thing that really stood out to me is that Joe does seem to think that a person who's capable of committing fraud is more likely to be capable of murder. Because that was a big part of the prosecution's case against Cho. They basically said Cho took advantage of these people. He's a bad man, and the kind of bad man that could commit these murders. Right. You know,
3: Sharon, while we're on the topic of Cho's financial crimes, there's still a lot of things about them that don't add up to me. like. The money, what did he do with all that money? It was supposedly $2 million. Where did it go? Was he blowing through cash? Was he buying houses, buying fancy cars, buying a boat? You spoke with his friends and family. Did you ask any of them about that?
4: I did, yeah. And here's what Cho's brother, Charlie, had to say.
1: I knew that my brother was in insurance, but I didn't know about his investments. I knew he invested, but not how. He never mentioned anything to me. Nothing about financial troubles. When I asked him what he was up to, he would just say, Oh, things aren't so good. He never mentioned anything about
4: financial struggles.
1: Huh.
3: Okay. Did you ask his wife?
4: Yes, this is what Puna said.
2: I found out
5: about the investments after everything blew up. Robin had a job and did this on the side. He just said that he was gathering a small fund with his friends, investing it in stocks, so that everyone can run small businesses with it and all. I didn't know the scale was so big until everything blew up.
4: She also said that, as far as she could tell, they
2: never benefited
4: from any of
2: it. We
5: always lived within our means. We never thrived financially. From then till now, we could never afford to buy a house. We've been living in apartments.
6: It was never as if we saw profits from the investments,
5: took other people's money, and had a good life with that money.
3: Okay, well, if that's true, if we can believe Bona here, then we still don't know where the money was going. I mean, I have to say, Sharon, this whole part of Cho's life is still very, very murky. I don't think we ever got a complete understanding of what actually happened with this Ponzi scheme or investment scheme or even really what it was. So I'd like you to go and do a little more digging into Cho's financial crimes. I know you tried to call people before and they didn't really get back to you, but maybe there's more information you can find out like in court documents or just do more digging and see what you can find out. It's important because the prosecution, as you said, made this whole case that Cho's fraud was predatory and callous and that this shows he was a bad man capable of murder. So let's take that on. Let's try to find out how true that claim could be. Okay, I'm on it. Great. So we'll go to a break right now and check back in in a couple days.
0: Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on
3: Sling TV for less. You mean you're me but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and
1: more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com
3: to see your offer.
2: Sling. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them.
3: Okay, Sharon, we're back from the break. But it's actually been a few days, and it's good to see you. You've been buried in court documents. Yep. You've been trying to get to the bottom of Cho's financial crimes, and you just texted me and said you wanted to hop on Zoom and record. So I'm guessing you found something interesting?
4: Yes, I did. So first of all, here's just like a quick recap of Cho's financial escapades. In 1998, Cho has his big idea. He starts telling his friends of investment opportunities that can make them all a ton of money. First, friends invest, then friends of friends, and so on. Fast forward to 2003. Checks are bouncing and investors are going to the cops. In May of 2003, when the murders happened, Cho had two separate civil lawsuits filed against him. But in late 2003, Cho filed for bankruptcy, so the lawsuits were dropped.
3: I still can't believe that you can file for bankruptcy to get out of civil lawsuits, but that's a subject we'll have to tackle in a different podcast. Go on.
4: So it seems like Cho might get away with all of this. But in 2006, he's arrested and charged with 118 counts of various financial crimes. At that point, he's accused of having defrauded a huge amount of money. Reports put it between $1.5 and $2.6 million. But then in June 2008, Cho is granted this weirdly lenient, generous plea deal. Only $265,000 in restitution, eight days in jail, and five years probation.
3: Right, right, I remember you telling me about this back in episode two. And I was, and still am, pretty surprised by that sentence. It just seems like a slap on the wrist. Ridiculous for
4: what he actually did. Well, I found out why Cho's sentence was so lenient. Really? What'd you find out? So Cho was accused of running a Ponzi scheme, selling people fake investment opportunities, constantly making up excuses for why payments were delayed, and defrauding people out of millions of dollars. But that's not exactly what happened. I found a document. See, most court docs have this very official appearance about them like elaborate headers with dates, names, and case citations. But in the middle of a bunch of those, I stumbled across this unassuming document. Nothing fancy. Times New Roman, no citations. And all it says at the top is People versus Robin Cho Disposition Report. What's it say? So on the first page, the report just lays it all out with no real preamble or anything. Quote, Deputy Public Defender John Powers supplied financial records previously not seen by our office, supporting Cho's contention that he had invested victims' money in poorly performing investments and rebutting the prosecution's argument that the money was immediately paid to other victims as part of a Ponzi scheme. Unquote. It turns out that an auditor and a lawyer from the State Department of Corporations reviewed those financial records as well. They found out Quote, the initial assessment of victim losses based on their statements to police was $1.5 million. But the defense could make a credible case that the victim's losses amounted to $233,000. And ultimately, the conclusion was that they, quote, feel that it has become difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Cho was engaged in a Ponzi scheme. In light of the new evidence that supports defendants' claim, that his investments were simply increasingly unsuccessful.
3: Wait, so Cho wasn't just juggling people's money around, he was actually investing? What was he investing in?
4: At least some of the time, Cho was investing in commodities. And there are months where he did so quite successfully. For instance, in January 2001, Cho made a profit of almost $114,000 in commodities trading. And in February, the next month, Cho made a profit of $194,000.
3: That's per month? That's a lot of money. Why wasn't this more apparent to prosecutors from the start?
4: The report gives two reasons. Reason number one, quote, When investigators from LAPD initially investigated this case, They did not serve a search warrant on Cho's office or residence in order to ascertain a full picture of Cho's financial transactions.
3: That sounds like they weren't doing their jobs.
4: Well, the second reason it was difficult to figure out what was going on is because some of Cho's investors were exaggerating in their complaints to police. And in some cases, they were exaggerating egregiously. Like they didn't give him nearly
3: as much money as they said they did? Can you give me an example?
4: Sure. Let's take the example of one investor who initially made accusations against Cho. After being pressed by the defense attorney, this investor admitted that, among other payments, Cho had sent him $62,000 by wire transfers and paid his US bills when he was in China.
3: Wait, Cho paid his bills when he was in China? What does that even mean?
4: Yeah, this part is wild. When that investor left the country between 2000 and 2002, he had the addresses changed on his bills, so that they were sent to Cho, who paid them. The investor also admitted that Cho supported his girlfriend, who had remained in the U.S., and paid his spousal support to his ex-wife for two years. Ultimately, the defense attorney found that he invested $170,000 and was repaid 200 dollars Wait,
3: so he actually made money on the deal?
4: Yes. (laughs) This
3: totally, it seems like Cho is almost like acting as these guys' personal bank or something. So at least what we could say is he wasn't a total con man. I mean, if Cho was intent on committing fraud, wouldn't the easiest guy to defraud be the guy who isn't even in the United States? (laughs) I mean, instead, Cho's paying his bills with investment returns.
4: Yeah, and this report has something to say about that arrangement as well. It says that this untraditional method of repayment may have enabled the investors to avoid declaring the payments on their taxes.
3: So some of these investors may also have been tax cheats? They
4: may have been, yeah. The whole report concludes with this, quote, The post-preliminary hearing audit significantly reduced the amount of loss, which can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt causing Cho's conduct to appear to be less criminal in its intent.
3: Another thing, Sharon, I mean, the time period they were talking about is 1998 to 2003. The first two years were a bull market. Investors were doing great. But then 9-11 happened and the stock market collapsed. So it is totally possible that Cho was making good faith investments, making good money. But then things went bad. The investments started to fail.
4: As soon as I read this document, I started thinking about the issue of motive in this case. While the prosecution was quick to remind the jury that they didn't have to prove motive, they also called to the stand people who had invested with Cho, trying to paint him as deceptive, manipulative, and capable of committing murder. But this report changes that narrative, that Cho was a multi-million dollar fraudster who had ripped off some of his closest friends, And it makes me question even more than before. Should Cho's financial history have been admitted into the trial at all? Was it really relevant in a murder trial? Was that fair? And so I started wondering about some of the other aspects of this case and how they were presented at trial. What about the typewritten tip letter? Or the fingerprint evidence? Were they presented fairly? Or not?
0: They're willing to tolerate bad science so long as it helps them put away the people they think are guilty. And I would rather that they were more concerned about doing the work and presenting the findings in a way that's accurate and
3: fair. We're continuing our deep dive into unanswered questions on the next episode of Strangeland, produced by Western Sound. More holes in the
2: case, starting right now.
0: Get everything for your next project today at Menards. Johnson Level has been an industry leader for over 75 years, offering the finest levels, lasers, and layout tools. The Johnson Level 85-foot laser distance measurer captures length, area, and volume. And it also can be used in dusty and rainy environments. View our selection of Johnson Level tools on Menards.com. Plus, check out the weekly flyer for many other great deals happening this week.
5: Save big money at Menards.